This is They Create Worlds, episode 152, Grand Theft Auto 2x3. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. So, Alex, I hear you've been a traitor again. You've been running off to far distant lands and talking to other people about video game history and leaving me completely out of the loop. That's right. Jeffrey, I'm a very bad person. You know, it used to be that I would go and talk on other podcasts, sometimes with you, sometimes alone, and there would be a podcast. But I've started doing it to others, Jeffrey. I've started forcing people to split their podcasts with me in them into multiple episodes because I talk too much. That's kind of impressive. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been appearing on a few things over the past few weeks. We should definitely recount that briefly. First thing is there's a podcast called Level Zero that is dedicated more to telling stories in video game history to an audience that isn't quite as really obsessively into video game history as I imagine our audience is. Which isn't to say it's a bad podcast, it's an interesting podcast, but it's aimed more at a general audience and tries to use a little bit of humor and other devices like that to kind of pull people in that might otherwise not be as interested. They recently did a three-part episode on Sega, the history of Sega kind of in the home, the Master System, the Genesis, and all of that. It was supposed to be a two-part episode on Sega, and then I was invited on for the second part. Good friend Ken Horowitz, who's written a couple of very fine books on Sega, and of course is also like the founder of Sega historical fandom with the amazing Sega 16 website, was on for part one. And then they brought me on to do part two because of our episode, our Dreams of Sega episode, where we kind of went into pretty good depth on the fall and all of that. Then I guess I talked so much that he was like, we're going to make this two episodes. And I'm like, okay. Both Parts 2 and Part 3 have been released now. I appear in both of those, and I would definitely tune into Part 1 first as well to get Ken's take on that early period. It's a little different format than some of the others we've appeared on. They tell the story kind of in an NPR investigative report kind of fashion. The two co-hosts do most of the talking, and then they have the expert that they bring in as a guest come in occasionally with quotes in the script. I'm not there the whole time, but it's uh, good, clean fun. I really enjoyed it when I listened to the episodes. It was just fascinating how they took a very different approach to how you and I do it. You and I are very off the cuff. All we say and all we do, we say in the moment. We do not really sit down and go, okay, we're going to script this out, and you're going to say this at this point, and I'm going to say this at this point, and so on and so forth. This <laughs> is exemplified by, if you ever hear an editing process, where you hear us slightly <laughs> talk over each other as one of us wrests control of the episode away from the other one. Yes, this podcast is not scripted, which should come as no surprise, but believe it or not, it's also very rarely even outlined. <laughs> Obviously, we know our topic beforehand, and I do a lot of research to make sure I know exactly what I want to get into the episode, but we just kind of do it, which leads to insanity, I guess. 
particularly for Jeffrey in editing. But if we did it the other way, it would drive me insane in writing. So one of us has to go insane, and, and Jeffrey has kindly volunteered to be the one. I'm already broken. That helps. <laughs> so yeah, definitely go check them out. They have a wonderful scripted version that they do it. They have jokes in there. They do bring Kevin in. They bring Alex in. As Alex said, they are just sort of like these quotes gives a little small section that they talk about. And then the host will expound upon that or give some more general audience clarification. Exactly. They pepper in some light humor and whatnot as well to help the whole thing go down. Level Zero podcast. And we'll, of course, put that in the show notes. Number two is actually an Argentinian podcast that is usually done on Espanol, though our conversation was in English, though it is being subtitled in Spanish as well for their regular audience. And this is the Moto Historia podcast. person I talked to, one of the hosts of it, is Guillermo Crespi who has been a longtime admirer of our show and is one of my two reviews at the time of this recording on Amazon. Give me more reviews. Is actually a professor of screenwriting. His background is in studying film, but he's also someone who grew up with video games in Argentina, computers and video games, and is very interested in this. And he has started this historical podcast in Argentina in Spanish. He's also done a lot of research into the local industry, which is still ongoing, to try to get a sense of what the scene was like down there in the 80s, 90s, and beyond. We had, I think, an absolutely wonderful discussion. It was, it was a kind of getting-to-know-you discussion where he was asking me about my research and about the podcast, about the book, about all those projects we all know and love with They Create Worlds. And then we also kind of vamped on a few topics as well, just briefly. There was no like overarching theme to the show. I had a lot of fun doing it. He's a wonderful gentleman, and I definitely urge you all to check that out. That will be in English for those of you that are like me and can't speak Spanish. The regular podcast is in Spanish. That's Modo Historia. To complete the trifecta in more ways than one, I have made a three-peat appearance on the Video Game History Hour, the wonderful weekly podcast put out by the Video Game History Foundation and co-hosted by its co-directors, Frank Sfaldi and Kelsey Lewin. Always a good time to be there. They specialize in having an expert or somebody who lived it, one or the other, come on every week to talk about a topic in video game history, usually something that they've written about or YouTubed about or podcasted about sometime close to the proximity of the recording. We had a discussion about computer space on that one because we are in the midst of the 50th anniversary of computer space and therefore in the midst of the 50th anniversary of the whole kind of commercial video game industry. Anyone who is a regular listener of the show knows that there was not suddenly a video game industry in 1971 because computer space was released in arcades, but it's still a milestone in the commercialization of this crazy thing. We talk about computer space. Some of it is stuff that we've talked about on this show when we did a computer space episode, but there was some nice fresh research that I managed to do, including a very interesting interview right before I went on the podcast. So there's some new, fresh, exciting material about the reception of computer space and how it was perceived by the industry, by players, 
etc. right after it came out. So we won't spoil that here. I would definitely encourage you to check out the uh, Video Game History Hour to see what we decided in terms of the reception of computer space in 1971-72. So we have lots of other ways you can hear Alex, all in the show notes and eventually on the website. I think I'm going to have to rip out all of the stuff about guest appearances in the About section and put it in its own new special section. Yes, it's getting long, and we need to do a tag team appearance one of these days again somewhere, Jeffrey. It's always fun to go on these shows with you, too. Yeah, of course. Sometimes I have something relevant to say, on occasion. (laughs) Absolutely you do. I can tell you that uh, we have loyal fans that appreciate you and the role you play on this show. So, not just behind the scenes, but on the microphone as well. Oh, I just work from the shadows, bringing forth a new era of making Alex (laughs) remove all the ums, uhs, and so's. So that I do not sound like Captain Kirk on this podcast. Exactly. One of these days, I'll probably have to just put a little screenshot of a finished episode and all the little line to show cuts. And then people can just stare at the horror and go, that makes it sound coherent? Yes. Yes, it does. (laughs) That is the downside of not doing this as a scripted podcast. Yeah, pretty much. If we did it scripted and I was mostly reading stuff, it would be a lot more straightforward. But because I am coming up with what I'm saying as I'm saying it, and because my brain often runs faster than my mouth and vice versa, they can get their signals crossed sometimes. And then Jeffrey has to pull the corpses of brain and mouth out of their twisted and mangled automobiles that have collided and try to bring them back to life in the podcast emergency room. If you want an example of how this actually sounds, just listen to Storytime with a Book or Storytime with a Book 2. Both of those episodes have Alex actually reading from his book, and you can actually tell the difference between the parts where it's off the cuff versus him just reading a script. Kind of interesting in its own right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But enough about me and other people's podcasts. We have our own podcast to do, Jeffrey, and I believe... Once again, I talk too much, and we're talking about the same thing we talked about last time, aren't we? Oh, I don't know. I think I'm just stealing everyone's expectations and running away in this automo car for the second or third time. That's right, because we are returning to our look at the early days, the relatively early days, of Grand Theft Auto. When last we left our anti-heroes... Grand Theft Auto had been released into the world to much controversy much of it manufactured rather than actual. The best kind of controversy, the one that you create and control. (laughs) Well, create at least. Unfortunately, I'm not sure they had as much control as they would have hoped. But that was the theory. You are right about that. It's become a cult hit. It definitely did fine. It didn't light the world on fire. In the world of Tomb Raiders and Mario 64s and Resident Evils, It struck a nerve with some, but not with all. It also helped in the formulation of a new label at Take-Two Games by the name of Rockstar, run by Sam Hauser, the London-born-and-bred admirer of American and New York street culture and hip-hop and gangs, not in the sense that he thinks gangs are a good idea, but kind of the romanticized form of gangs that could be found in movies like The Warriors. Now, you said Rockstar. Is this the same Rockstar that we think of now as Rockstar North? That's actually one of the next areas that we will be going into as we cover this part of the episode. So there's Rockstar Games, 
which is the label that is created by Sam Hauser within Take-Two Interactive in order to publish games that he has a particular interest in and takes a particular stewardship over, a certain kind of game that is a little edgier, a little more street, a little more hip-hop, a little more grungy. Take-Two, as we discussed in the last episode, had made its bones in interactive movies. The entire point of founding the company by its founder, Ryan Brandt, was that he wanted to enter this brand new Sillywood world and chart a new course for interactive movies by having all of his dad's friends appear in these things. His dad's very well connected from the publishing business. He was kind of coming in at the tail end of this, as we discussed, and so that didn't work. So the Housers came in, as we discussed, uh, Sam and his brother Dan, through the acquisition of BMG Interactive, because Take-Two is now needing to expand, grow, and move in a different direction, with this whole multimedia thing clearly not working out. So Rockstar is Sam's creation to be the primary vehicle for the games he wants to do, which very much includes Grand Theft Auto. Rockstar North is a developer. Rockstar North is the entity that was formerly known as DMA Design. DMA, of course, is the company that created the original Grand Theft Auto from its humble beginnings as Race in Chase, all the way to its glorious release amid faux controversy in 97 in the UK, 1998 in the United States. DMA is going through some changes of its own during this time period. It's a period of time, of course, when budgets are expanding, when 3D is coming in in a big way, teams are larger, development is more complex. DMA Design, through its work on N64 games, it was originally part of Nintendo's dream team for the N64, even though the game that they were making to be a launch title, Body Harvest, ended up not only being delayed from launch, but wasn't even published by Nintendo when the smoke had cleared, because Nintendo didn't want it anymore. But they had worked in that game and in Space Station Silicon Valley, another one of their games at this time, with 3D worlds and 3D tools, completely different from what they were doing in Grand Theft Auto, which of course originally was top-down. Because of this, they attracted the attention of Gremlin Graphics, which was another UK developer that was kind of a moderately-sized publisher. We've talked before how the 90s was a period when kind of the mid-tier British publisher was really under threat because they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the distribution, they didn't have the technology to compete with the big U.S. and Japanese publishers and developers once those companies really started in the middle of the 90s infiltrating the European market hard, particularly through the Sony PlayStation. Gremlin is one of these companies, kind of like Ocean and Elite, both of which we talked about in previous episodes, that's trying to survive in this new world order. Their development hasn't necessarily been going great in this transition to 3D, but they know they need to get there. They actually end up purchasing DMA right in the middle of all of this in 1997. Gremlin was actually the publisher of Space Station Silicon Valley, this 3D platform game, as well as other DMA games, At the same time that these other companies like BMG Interactive, ASC, and then ultimately Take-Two, we talked about this all in episode one, were publishing Grand Theft Auto. Since that deal predated the purchase, Gremlin didn't have the rights to that, even though Gremlin owned the company. 
Grand Theft Auto, the original game, is somewhat guided a little bit around the edges by Sam Hauser at BMG Interactive, because Sam was there first. But it's really a DMA game. It's really David Jones and Mike Daly and uh, the lead programmer and designer Keith Hamilton, these DMA people that are really driving that product. As we get into the inevitable sequel, where I should say the inevitable first expansion disc, which we won't go into really, but uh, GTA London, and then the inevitable sequel, the Housers start taking on more of an active role. Grand Theft Auto 2 is going to be a rock star game in terms of being published. It's still going to be created by the folks at DMA Design. The sensibilities, I think, of the programmers at DMA Design and the developers there are still going to be the kind of primary drivers on this thing. Remember, David Jones, as we talked about last time, who is very much into systems and making these expansive worlds work. That was kind of one of the big things for him about Grand Theft Auto. He's not the one that originated the project, but as head of the studio, obviously, he has a lot of input on where it goes. He's the one that was really into this idea of we're going to make everything work. The trains are going to run on time. Literally, they're on a schedule. Traffic lights are going to work. There's going to be traffic. It's going to be this open world that you get to play around in. And then, of course, he's the one that decided, well, if we're making this so open world, we have to have some kind of objective. So that objective is going to be accumulating points, much like you would in pinball. Sam Hauser is definitely interested in gameplay systems. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you look at all the Grand Theft Auto games, and gameplay is a very big part of it. But I think he was also interested in trying to push it forward in new technical directions as well. I don't get the sense DMA was as interested in that. Not that DMA was not interested in technology. They certainly were. As I said, they had other games, particularly Space Station Silicon Valley, which we will put in the show notes, where they were pushing polygonal graphics and pushing 3D. But they resisted the urge to change much in Grand Theft Auto 2 in terms of the presentation, that top-down presentation, in part, I think, because now the Take-Two was a company trying to go public and needed steady releases, they wanted the next Grand Theft Auto game in 1999, come hell or high water. So there wasn't going to be a lot of time to work with this. What do you do to make a game stand out when you don't have a lot of time? Well, you don't change the technology much, that's for sure. You stick with the same engine, you stick with the same basic aesthetics, you stick with the same objectives. You can update art a little bit, you can update setting a little bit, you can put some new twists on it, but that's about all you can do. So that's kind of the approach they took. They decided to go with a near-futuristic city, a near-future city. So not something that's all flying cars and Jetsons and all of that, but something that you can tell is a few years down the line from where the world actually was in the late 1990s. Something vaguely dystopian, something vaguely maybe Blade Runner-ish, but not full-on dystopia, certainly not full-on post-apocalyptic. It's still a city, a living, breathing city with cars and people that you can steal said cars and run over said people. Maybe a very exaggerated or high-crime area at, say, New York in its heyday of the 80s, or... Cape Town in uh, South Africa or something like that, where you just have a town that is notorious for crime, 
there is a degree of law enforcement, but by and large, criminals get away with whatever they want. Right. Something like that. Absolutely. They called it Anywhere USA because it wasn't meant like Liberty City and Vice City and San Andreas in Grand Theft Auto 1. It was not meant to evoke a specific American city, but it was still very much meant to evoke something American. They divided the city into three areas, so there were three maps again, just like there had been three maps in the first game, but instead of being separate cities, they were different areas, kind of a downtown area, an industrial area, a residential area of this anywhere USA near future city. The main thing that they changed that I'm sure had to have been an influence of Sam Hauser, who is taking more of an active role on this one, certainly than in the original Grand Theft Auto, is that the missions were tied to individual gangs. There were three main gangs in the city. You could perform missions in any order, just like in the first game, very open world, with any of these three gangs and help one or the other gain more power in the city by doing missions for them. As we said, Sam Hauser's a big fan of kind of the romanticized versions of street gangs that you see in movies like The Warriors. So this idea of having these distinctive competing gangs is certainly something that would have appealed to him. They really went completely nonlinear with it. There really isn't an overarching plot. The first one didn't really have an overarching plot either, but I mean, they went really freeform on this one because you could really take pretty much any mission at any time. They're definitely focused more on the open world side of it and the freedom side of it and the expansiveness side of it than they are on what would shape the later Grand Theft Auto games, which is have all of that stuff going on, but also have some kind of plot. Grand Theft Auto 2 is done by DMA and is released by Rockstar, which, again, is an imprint of Take-Two. I mean, Take-Two is the publisher releasing it, but this time it is being released under the Rockstar logo. This is the first time for a Grand Theft Auto game to be released under that Rockstar Games logo. It does come out in October of 1999, and nobody cares. (gasps) It's not a flop, but it's not even the cult hit that the first one is. We know it sold at least 100,000 copies in the UK because it got a sales award from the trade organization there, the Entertainment and Leisure Software Publishers Association, or ELSPA. We know that the PlayStation version sold 300,000 units in the UK because, again, it got an award for that. I don't know that we necessarily know what the sales were in the US. It didn't, like, die a horrible flaming death, but nobody really cared. And there's a big reason for why that was, because at the same time, this cute, clunky, little top-down sequel came out. Another game came out called Driver. Driver. That's right. Driver was the brainchild of Martin Edmondson and his uh, Reflections Interactive. In some ways, it was similar to Grand Theft Auto. Now, you play the good guy. You're not a thief. There's also no entering and exiting cars and walking along the streets. But you play a cop and you go through a series of missions in this expansive, somewhat open world, doing various kinds of driving gameplay and thwarting criminals. In many ways, it is incredibly inferior to Grand Theft Auto as a playing experience. It is not full open world. It is mission-based, and those missions uh, have an order to them. The difficulty curve is way out of whack. The tutorial mission is ridiculous. It's got these weird spikes in difficulty. 
It's really not the game that Grand Theft Auto is, but it was a fully three-dimensional, polygonal, texture-mapped city. You're driving around in a three-dimensional space, and a pretty sizable one. I'm looking at this game, and I can see some hallmarks of Grand Theft Auto 3, where you have the car, that sort of behind-the-car camera perspective, big cartoony letters for your damage, your time on things. You got a little map in the bottom right. This is done on the PlayStation, and the PlayStation is notorious for particularly bad render distances. And (laughs) I'm looking like going down a street or something. It just drops off noticeably. There's a reason games like Silent Hill put a fog effect in the far distance because that helped obscure that kind of thing. A bright, sunny day, and you're driving down the street here, and then all of a sudden, pow, mysterious bridge that you should have seen way long before is suddenly half-rendered in front of you. That's a little confusing and jarring. Exactly. But for the time, it was like nothing people had seen before. Obviously, there had been polygonal driving games before. There'd been plenty of racing games. There'd been Ridge Racer. There'd been Daytona. But this was driving around in a completely realized urban environment in three dimensions. That had never been done. And as is often the case, graphics trump gameplay. Grand Theft Auto 2 was considered old and quaint and archaic when placed next to Driver. Never mind that the gameplay is in many ways richer, because you're not in this 3D cityscape. The missions are sort of like you go into this house, you listen to a old answering machine to get your missions, I presume, and do your little bits or little puzzle thing. And it has little cutscenes and vignettes on it. I can see some of the framework here that one could have. You have sort of like a cutscene where you as a cop are talking to other people. Just shows mm-hmm. this from a certain perspective. You can't really interact with it. And it just sets up the what are you doing for the next scene? And it goes, oh, you're going to go do this. Another staple from Grand Theft Auto 3 is you have an arrow bouncing up and down on your target that you're supposed to be chasing. That seems familiar. Absolutely. I mean, it's possible that they took some cues from Driver, though I wouldn't say that they were heavily influenced by it. The main thing they took from Driver, though, is that they had to get into 3D. This top-down stuff wouldn't work anymore. Sam Hauser was not giving up on Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto was a series that he was personally in love with for all the reasons we talked about. He loved crime movies. He loved the romanticized version of gangs in crime movies. He loved the idea of something gritty and urban and street and raw and real. He was continuing Grand Theft Auto. Even though Grand Theft Auto 2 could be viewed as a disappointment. Again, I don't think they were losing money on it, but it just didn't even reach the cult status, really, that the first one did. Though, ironically, Grand Theft Auto 2 is the first one that I actually played. I'd never played the first one. But that's an aside. Meanwhile, there was some real tension between what kind of Sam Hauser wanted to do and what David Jones wanted to do at DMA. There was also tension between Rockstar and the new overlords of DMA, because Gremlin's attempt to kind of bolster themselves by acquiring DMA's technology and putting out some games that make a splash and kind of making in this world, 
doesn't quite work out, and so Gremlin Graphics is itself acquired by Infogrom, which you may recall we spent an episode or two talking about at length, the French publisher that wanted to take on the world and gobbled up a ton of companies and became the second largest publisher in the business, only to implode spectacularly because they couldn't actually handle all that they consumed. You can see our Infogram episodes for more on that. But for our story here, the important thing is they acquired Gremlin Graphics. So now DMA is owned by an even bigger company, a company that has ambitions of being the Disney of the video game industry. And that's not an accidental comparison. It's it's not just that they want to be the Disney in the sense of being this huge, overarching transmedia behemoth. But as we may recall from way back when, when we talked about Infogram, its founder, Bruno Bonnell, was a huge fan of European comics. Asterisk, Le Tournique Bleu, Tintin, all of these very particular European comic books. He sees the company as being this somewhat family-friendly, kind of overarching entertainment, Disney-esque juggernaut within the computer game space, the video game space. It doesn't work out that way. But Grand Theft Auto is not really something that fits into this image. Even in its 2D pixelated form, it's not nearly as controversial as it will become. That's still not something, I mean, you're running over Hare Krishnas so that you can get the big Goranga exclamation and bonus points. <laughs> I mean, that's not the Disney of video games right there. Nope, that's the hot coffee of video games. <laughs> right. Now there's this real strange tension here because DMA is creating the Grand Theft Auto series for one big publisher, Take-Two. They're owned by another big publisher, Infogram. When they were owned by Gremlin, they were a publisher, but I mean, they were small potatoes. Now they're owned by a big publisher, and this publisher doesn't necessarily want that Grand Theft Auto stigma. You also have David Jones and Sam Hauser kind of diverging on what they see as important. Sam Hauser wants to take things in a more technologically driven direction. He definitely wants to get this thing into 3D. Sam's brother, Dan, whom we talked about briefly in the last episode, who is not so much a gamer, but is a writer, an Oxford-educated writer, I mean, a serious writer, feels that they've gone way off the rails with this open world thing. Not that he wants to eliminate open worlds. Grand Theft Auto remains a series that has as its hallmark open worlds. He decides, I think quite correctly, that one of the flaws of Grand Theft Auto 2 is there was no narrative. I mean, there was basically nothing. You could do anything you wanted at any time, which is great, except that he's a literary guy. He wants there to be a story. And Sam agrees with this because he loves crime movies. He loves narrative arcs as well. So they want to bring more narrative structure into it, even as they keep it open world. And they want to push the technology forward. David Jones, I think, is far more concerned about the systems side of it. He wants to make the simulation even better and the way everything interacts and works together even better. He wants to expand the open world concept, make it even bigger and more involved, rather than expanding the narrative concept necessarily. So you have the creatives kind of at loggerheads a little bit. You have the companies a little at loggerheads. 
And the way this is finally resolved is right as Grand Theft Auto 2 is coming out, DMA Design is actually sold by Infogrom to Take-Two Interactive. So finally, publisher Rockstar and developer DMA Design of the Grand Theft Auto series are unified under the same corporate entity, which is Take-Two Interactive. David Jones decides that this is a great chance for him to bow out. He takes his portion of the money, the proceeds from the sale. He takes a few of his uh, good buddies at DMA, and they go off and found their own company that can realize the dream of the direction that he wants to go. They found a company called Real-Time Worlds. They make some action-adventure games like Crackdown that are very open-world, and then, of course, the MMO, APB, All Points Bulletin, which is kind of that Grand Theft Auto idea taken in that more systems-driven direction rather than that narrative direction. That's kind of him taking Grand Theft Auto in the direction that he wanted to see the series going away. Real-Time Worlds limps along for a few years before going defunct in 2010. They're not involved with Grand Theft Auto, so we'll leave that there. But that's just to say that David Jones leaves and takes kind of his vision of what that kind of game could be with him. Now that DMA has been absorbed by Take-Two, Sam, of course, wants to take a lot more control over what's going on with the developer because they are the developer of Grand Theft Auto, which is his baby. They actually move the company from Dundee which we talked about last time, is the down-on-its-luck industrial city in Scotland that the uh, company was established in, to the slightly more upscale and refined environs of Edinburgh, capital of Scotland. They rebranded Rockstar North because Rockstar is the publisher, it is the label, it is the company that is making the games that Sam Hauser wants to make. Now the developer is going to be part of Rockstar. It's going to be part of this punk street guerrilla organization run out of 575 Broadway in New York. It's north because it's in Scotland. It's in the North Country. Later on, as they acquire more studios, there'll be a Rockstar San Diego. You know, there'll be other Rockstar studios as well. But this is part of fully bringing what was DMA design into the Rockstar fold and into the Rockstar mission. Which explains the weird naming convention of having Rockstar, the publisher overarching thing. Then you have these little satellite things of Rockstar San Diego, Rockstar North, Rockstar South, Rockstar the toilet paper, Rockstar the video game. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So Rockstar North becomes the developer of the games released by the publisher Rockstar Games, which is a subsidiary of Take-Two Interactive. That's kind of the chain here. Rockstar is essentially DMA design, but considering that they move the company, they relocate the company, they change the name, there's continuity. Many of the same people will continue working on the Grand Theft Auto series, but in, in some ways it's a different developer just because it's been moved someplace else and it's been brought more firmly into the orbit of the Housers back in New York City. So all of that, of course, brings us to the continuation of the series and the game that really makes Grand Theft Auto Grand Theft Auto, that being Grand Theft Auto 3. Grand Theft Auto 3, quite frankly, has its birth in the Sony PlayStation 2. Once Sam Hauser and his buddies at Rockstar 
saw the capabilities of the PlayStation 2 for themselves and the power that that system was going to bring to the market. They knew that they could bring the Grand Theft Auto series into three dimensions. That's one aspect of the Grand Theft Auto 3 development. Part of what went into making Grand Theft Auto 3, Grand Theft Auto 3, was take everything that was great about 2D Grand Theft Auto and take everything that they wish they could have put into 2D Grand Theft Auto and put it into a new Grand Theft Auto game that is in a fully rendered polygonal open world city. That's kind of the primary goal of the people at Rockstar North. As I said, it's many of the same people still working on it. David Jones and some of the others may be gone, but a lot of the team is still there. A lot of the same people are working on it, and they're very enthused about being able to take what they did in two dimensions and bring it into three dimensions. So we're still going to have the open world. We're still going to have this idea that you can jack a car from someone, drive off in it, mow down pedestrians, go on a killing spree, just drive around exploring. We're still going to have all of that open world stuff in it. But we're also going to let Dan Hauser do his thing. We are also going to, for the first time, actually have a narrative. We're going to keep it fast and loose. They come up with a mission structure that allows you to return to the story whenever you want. Sam and Dan know that they're making a video game, not a movie, and they want to keep that open-world aesthetic of Grand Theft Auto going. Just because they want to go narrative doesn't mean they're like David Jones and it's like the system is the only thing. The antithesis of that saying the narrative is the only thing. They come up with a mission structure where you can drive all around the city. Yes, Grand Theft Auto 3's Liberty City opens up gradually in the sense that you can't quite go everywhere at the very beginning, but it does eventually open up the whole city, and they never force you into a narrative section. That's one of the big things about the Grand Theft Auto games. There are people who give you missions. There are people that give you missions in the main narrative, as well as people that give you missions on little side stories. You can go to these people when you want. When you finish one mission, you don't have to immediately jump into the next mission. It's that freedom and open world structure that is maintained, but with a more narrative focus. I like to view it sort of like you have an overarching plot that your character can follow. You can focus on that and speed run through the entire game semi-quickly. However, there's all these little side things you can do, these side quests. I can work for this minor crime boss. I can just go run and do my own thing, steal a bunch of cars of a certain type and bring it to this other guy. There are random phone booths that will ring and just have a random puzzle of, hey, get to these six points as quickly as you can. As the game expands, as you play more of the narrative, more of these sort of like mini games and little side quests and little fun tricks that they came up with are introduced into the game and are unlocked and peppered throughout it. So after you go through more or less an introductory phase of you getting used to the story, you're getting used to some of the mechanics that we have going on. These are simple mechanics. Let's increase the difficulty of those mechanics. Let's increase the ways that it can interact with you in new and interesting ways in these little mini games. Then we're going to take these mini games and wrap it up in little small mini narratives and also in through this larger narrative. You can do that in any order. Mm -hmm. You may not be able to do everything at once until you get far enough in the main narrative, 
but there's going to be enough there to hold your interest so you're not just sort of railroaded doing this one thing all the time. You can be like, oh, yeah, I'm doing the main story. Oh, I like how this guy over here is having me do this stuff, so I'm going to steal all these cards for him for three hours. Then go back, okay, yeah, I want to see what else is going on. I forgot about whatever I was doing for this other guy. (laughs) Maybe you even forget what the main story is at some point, and then you eventually just find a guy eventually and go, oh, right, it was his main story I was doing. And he sends me off in his whole other different direction, like, ooh, the Richie part of town. It's all these shining light. I can talk to these people inside this big building. Oh, look, I can do this, that, and the other thing. It's very well done in how it just takes a narrative structure and uses it as a vehicle to have a very focused intro that just balloons out exponentially. You can jack a taxi cab and then do nothing but run taxi fares for the next five hours straight. Mm -hmm. You can take an ambulance and you can drive people to the hospital. I mean, they even include mini games that are not advertised or not announced. If you're sick of being the bad guy, you can just turn it into a game of Crazy Taxi for a few hours. You can just get lost in the radio stations. It had been a convention going back to the first game that they thought was kind of cool that you could get in a car and there would be music distinct to that car playing on the radio and that would be the soundtrack. That's nothing new. But with Grand Theft Auto 3, for the first time, they actually went out and got actual music. They got classic rock, they got punk, they got opera, and they had these different stations that would have different types of music. They had talk radio, everyone's favorite. Everyone loves the talk radio in Grand Theft Auto. It is not just sort of like a one-thing vignette. I remember when we first got this game, my sister and I were fascinated with the talk radio section because it was just funny from the hilarity that is in it. Uh huh. We sat down with dinner and just had the radio on in the game to the talk radio station, and that thing went on for, I swear, an hour. Before it repeated. An hour. Yep. The radio stations, even the music radio stations, like the country and the rock stations and whatnot, would have DJs, and the DJs would have funny things to say. There'd be commercials. The commercials would be funny. You might just go around stealing cars and trying out different radio stations just as you drive around. Grand Theft Auto is not the first game, obviously, that ever had an open world. We talked, obviously, about the immense influence of Elite, for instance. It's not even the first game in 3D, in three dimensions, that has a fully open world. Surely, you know, Shenmue is one that comes to mind that predates it on the Dreamcast. The thing about a game like Shenmue, which was open world, is that most of the open world was boring. I know Shenmue has its adherents and has its followers, and and that's great, but walking around Yokohama in that game is for the most part boring. The little activities you can do that are not part of the main plot don't tend to be very exciting. Something like Elite is a lot of fun, obviously, but it's not in this fully alive kind of world. It's entirely procedurally generated. It's vector graphics. Again, it's a game that can be great fun and can be very rewarding, but it's a very particular type of procedurally generated open world. Grand Theft Auto 3 is handcrafted, not procedurally generated. And everything you can do in it is just so fun. Stealing different types of cars and motorcycles and seeing how they handle, doing street races, doing taxi fares, just going on a killing spree if that's your thing for a while. Just like in the earlier games, of course, you have the wanted level rising and the police will start coming after you and eventually your killing spree is going to end. But you can do that just to let off some steam. 
you can go find rare weapons like rocket launchers hidden in out-of-the-way places. You can buy property. You can do all of these things and have interesting missions with interesting characters, many of whom are voiced by famous character actors like Kyle MacLachlan. It's all in this very big kind of New York City, but not really New York City, semi-satirical criminal world. It's really like nothing that had ever been seen before. You know, its influences, which we need to get into, are really just the way cinema had developed and the kind of cinema that the Housers had consumed. The old movies, Get Carter, which of course their mother was in, The Getaway, these classic crime movies, but also the works of Martin Scorsese, things like Goodfellas and Casino and Mean Streets. Then the works of Quentin Tarantino, stuff like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. The Sopranos had just started on television, on HBO. It was kind of the beginning of the golden age of television. And so The Sopranos and the way that that depicted the mafia, because the first game is very much set in a New York mafia kind of world, is an influence. Michael Mann's Heat which was a very famous action movie from the 90s starring Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, informed it. It was a reaction to the way cinema had changed in the 90s and the way television was beginning to change at the very end of the 90s with The Sopranos, as opposed to the way movies and blockbuster filmmaking had been like in the 80s. You know, the big hits, right, in in video games, they were fantasies of one form or another. I mean, even setting aside the literal Final Fantasies, I'm not just talking about RPGs, but Mario. Mario is whimsical. Mario is eating mushrooms to grow big and stomping on turtles and rescuing the princess. Even when you had something more quote-unquote grounded, you were talking about Laura Croft, which was very much informed by something like Indiana Jones and that kind of 1980s action blockbuster. Or it was something like Resident Evil which was very much informed by George Romero and zombie films and that kind of horror filmmaking. These are all great genres, genres that I personally enjoy too, but they're more fantastical genres. They're not grounded in realism. And you had a cinema movement, and it's not like it started in the 90s, but it kind of hit the mainstream in the 90s. You had a cinema movement that was kind of epitomized by the work of Quentin Tarantino in things like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction about bringing action filmmaker back into a grittier, more realistic, more brutal kind of world. So instead of Indiana Jones gallivanting off across the world, it's Mr. Black and Mr. Blue and Mr. Pink all coming together after a bank robbery and (laughs) torturing a cop (laughs) in, in Reservoir Dogs. I mean, it's a completely different kind of action filmmaking. It's something that's even starting to infect television with something like The Sopranos as well, which again is about something more character-driven, something closer to the ground, something more gritty. Grand Theft Auto is bringing that into video games, essentially for the first time. It's a major paradigm shift. It still has some of those whimsical elements of past Grand Theft Autos. No one would ever confuse Grand Theft Auto or Grand Theft Auto 2 of being games that were trying to ground themselves in realism. As I said, you run over lines of Hare Krishnas and the word Garanga (laughs) flashes across the screen as you get your bonus points. 
they definitely don't want to lose that kind of funhouse mirror satirical edge to it. Liberty City is a reflection, a kind of warped reflection of New York. It's not meant to really be New York. Certainly the radio stations are full of satire and silliness and ridiculousness. But it's still about moving closer to that cinema paradigm, something that Scorsese had been doing throughout the 70s and 80s, something that Tarantino picked up in the 90s and was starting to get mainstream acceptance and was starting to push through that blockbuster mentality of the 1980s to get some traction. Now, you know, a few years later, we're seeing that happen in video games. For those that wonder what was the big deal about Grand Theft Auto, both from a player enjoyment perspective and a controversy perspective, it's that it was something that felt more grounded, more realistic, and more contemporary and relevant in a lot of ways than something like Mario or Tomb Raider or Crash Bandicoot. I think one way I could probably phrase what you're trying to get across here is that it made it so that this is approachable as a real-world game where video games grew up. Mm -hmm. We don't have this game for little Johnny, this game for little Susie, where they're playing around with these little Winslow characters. Maybe my teenager is gallivanting around with Laura Croft. Oh, great. May have to have a conversation later about her. (laughs) But it's still whimsical. It's still fantasy. It's still... The world of a romanticized view of how life is. With Grand Theft Auto, yes, it does have those, and those are outside of the main narrative. But if you just follow the main narrative, the main narrative itself is very much grounded in a way of something that you can believe happened. Mm -hmm. A guy is in an accident when he's being transported as a prisoner, he manages to escape. He gets picked up by some local crime bosses, and he starts working his way up the gang roster, working with other gangs, and building his own power. You can see how that happens, because that's how it happens in real life. Mm -hmm. If you want an idea of how that is, I will put in episodes of the Jordan Harbinger show that I've listened to, where he actually talks to... People who lived as gangsters, real mafia people in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You listen to the things that these people did, and it floors you. I will point out that this is certainly not for kids. This is more for adults, what I'm bringing up here. So, grain of salt there with the show notes that I will put in. If you have an interest in this kind of thing, what I was hearing there has great parallels to what they are telling story-wise here. You don't have the sort of James Bond situation of, Ah, Mr. Bond, I have got you, and at long last I will strap you to this table as my laser goes and tries to split you in half. Meanwhile, I will go drink champagne with Mrs. Moneybags over here in the next room over. Ah, you will be so kind as to die in three seconds. Fantastic, I'll see you later. Whoa, you escaped. Oh, dear. Now I must be foiled. Oh, no. (laughs) Right. Instead, you have, oh, you crossed me? You're dead. That's it. We're done. I didn't even say anything. There's no grandiose lead up to it. Very much how things really are in those kind of situations where it's sort of like hair trigger, casual disregard for life, casual disregard for property and human decency. There is a reason that people saw Grand Theft Auto and went, 
that is promoting moral decay. Yeah. It is, in a way, glorifying crime. It is glorifying gangster lifestyle. No. You have to make your own decision on that, on whether or not it's appropriate for you or your kids or whatever. Right. I think for myself, at least shows that that life exists. And if we hide ourselves away from acknowledging that that kind of thing is there and even to an extent play around responsibly in dark fantasy, it can help inform our understanding as human beings and why people would actually end up in that kind of lifestyle, in that kind of thing, and how they get lost in it. Exactly. Of course, it's still a video game. It's not completely true to life. You can still go around doing some ridiculous things and go on massive killing sprees. It's still a video game, but it is something so very different. It really is something for adults and something that is relatable to everybody, not just in a niche genre like science fiction or fantasy or horror. It's something that has universal appeal in the same way that uh, The Godfather had universal appeal or Goodfellas had universal appeal. It's something different in kind, and they pulled out all the stops. They got a young Iranian director, Navid Khonsari, to direct actors doing motion capture. They rented a motion capture studio in the Brooklyn Navy Yard and used motion capture to animate everything that was going on. One of the funnier stories is they, of course, animated the carjacking. They motion captured, I mean, the carjacking. The director, Consari, told the guy who was doing the carjacking to scream really loudly right before opening the door without telling the actor that was in the car so that the actor in the car would cringe and flinch in that moment to create something that was more visceral and more real. They treated it with respect. They didn't treat it like they were just doing some video game animations. They were trying to capture a certain kind of humanity with it, a certain mindset with it. As I said, they got real character actors, professional character actors, to do the voice work. One of the things that really stands out for me, and I think just shows exactly what they were doing with this thing, is the commercials for the game. They did commercials both on television and in movie theaters. They weren't the first to do it in movie theaters. Final Fantasy VII made a big splash doing movie theater commercials when it came out, and even it's not the first one to ever do it. The commercials, and of course we'll put this commercial in the show notes, it's footage of the game of various explosions and various conversations and all of this. What's playing over the top of it? It's Puccini's most famous aria, O Mio Babino Caro. Opera. They're selling a video game with a dramatic trailer using opera. This ain't Genesis does what Nintendo don't, you know? We've taken this to the classy level. That stood out to me. I mean, I'm a video gamer. I was a video gamer then. And I remember seeing those commercials and being like, I have never seen a video game commercial like that before. It felt like something more serious, more grown up, even from the commercials. It plays very much with the commercial like you are looking at a video game version of a trailer for a crime movie, a crime television show. Mm -hmm. That is what you are looking at. That is really what the narrative structure brings to the game that just brings the whole thing, the whole game, really, to a pinnacle of success. Yeah, we have this fully realized 3D world. Yeah, we have all these wonderful systems with trains and day-night cycles. 
weather, mm-hmm. people doing their own thing with their own crime, police hunting them down and stuff. Mm-hmm. What really brings it together is that narrative element that really captures the imagination and draws you in. And that's really what I think brings out the best of this series and is the greatest contribution that Sam Hauser brings to it. Absolutely. I actually mentioned this on the Argentine podcast I was on recently as well. So if anyone has already listened to that, this is kind of repeat. But I'm not really a theorist on game design and that side of things. But if I were to put my finger on what it is that a video game can do narratively that a book can't do, that a television show can't do, that a movie can't do, the thing that sets video games apart is the concept of space. You can create worlds, as our podcast title says. You can create worlds, and you can allow the player to explore the nooks and crannies of those worlds. Books and movies and everything are inherently linear. Even if you have something like Choose Your Own Adventure that has some small element of narrative choice in them, They're still linear. They're telling a canned story in a canned setting, and what's in there is all there is. Yeah, you can do, as some franchises like Star Wars have done, you can do tie-in source books and role-playing game books and all of this that expand the world outside of what you see within the narrative, but you're on a particular path that's been chosen by the author. What video games can do that these other mediums can't do is they can give you space, and they can allow you to walk off that beaten path and see what's going on over here even if that has not much to do with the main narrative. You can really understand the world, the universe, whatever it is that's being presented to you. You can understand the lore, the people, the personalities, the concept, the hardships, the triumphs of a entire mm-hmm. universe and just understand it. A game that exemplifies that kind of concept is any one of these games that don't actually have much of a combat to it, but it's just you explore and it tells a story based on what you explore. Like on home. That's probably the first one that jumped to mm-hmm. mind. And there's a few other ones that come to mind too. You don't know what's going on. Is this a horror game? Is this that and the other thing? It's just telling a story and mm-hmm. you learn that story. You discover that story. That's kind of what ties into the whole thing with augmented reality game that is a bit of a craze in the last few years where Mm -hmm. you have people trying to discover these little mysteries and puzzles because they like having their brain engaged Mm -hmm. and that's something that video games provide for a narrative that movies television and everything else does not i can be engaged by solving this puzzle that goes oh i solved this puzzle great i get a little dopamine hit from solving the puzzle And I'm rewarded with more story that helps me understand and explore this world better. Exactly. What Grand Theft Auto really does is it bridges that divide. And I think that's why it remains just about the most popular video game franchise in history and has been a model that so many other open world style games have followed. It brings together some of the narrative elements and some of the action elements from cinema, from television. But then it brings in the video game strength of space, and it puts these two things together. Dan Hauser's writing, Navid Kansari's direction, the world building of the people at DMA Design, and Sam Hauser over top of it all with his love of 
crime movies and gritty movies and street and urban, and you put it all together, and that's Grand Theft Auto 3. Grand Theft Auto 3 is not necessarily the Citizen Kane moment of, of video games. That's a somewhat overused, trite thing to say. A Citizen Kane moment being the idea that you do something in your medium that is distinct from another medium. Citizen Kane was one of the earliest movies that really used lighting and the camera and blocking and, quite frankly, editing in a way that was not being used previously because movies had been more like theater productions and they were using the language of the theater. Citizen Kane helped create the language of the cinema, something like Watchmen and graphic novels, which took advantage of the visual presentation of the comic book and elevated it in a way and told a story in a way that you could not necessarily tell as effectively in movies or television. I think Grand Theft Auto kind of does that same thing for video games. It may not be perfected yet. But allowing you to explore a space and do almost whatever you want within that space while still being part of some kind of overarching narrative, that's Grand Theft Auto's contribution. And that's why I really do think Grand Theft Auto 3 is one of the most influential games of all time. Of course, it's a series that's a best-selling series. I mean, the game took off like a rocket. It sold millions upon millions upon millions. It helped raise the entire video game industry to new heights in terms of the overall profitability. There had been a brief dip during the console transition. This was not an almost crash like happened in the 90s, which we talked about in our Crash That Almost Was episode. I mean, it was nothing dire like that. But there was a brief dip during the console transition, and then Grand Theft Auto helps rocket the video game industry to even newer heights. It didn't do it all by itself, but it was a major contributor. Of course, it launched Take-Two Interactive into the stratosphere, made it one of the top publishers in the industry, made them lots of money, helped them weather some really bad financial scandals they were having at the time that would ultimately force Ryan Brandt out of the company because they had done some questionable accounting, and really allowed Take-Two to, quite frankly, continue to exist and thrive. There was a time that EA tried to take it over when John Riccatello was in charge of EA because EA was a bigger company and Take-Two basically didn't have much except Grand Theft Auto. But Grand Theft Auto was such a huge franchise that it was enough. They have a few other franchises, obviously, now that have been successful, like the Red Dead franchise. But Grand Theft Auto is what made that company and is what kept them viable and why they're still around as a publisher today, even after they had all the financial scandals and boardroom upheavals. It wasn't just GTA 3, because then they follow GTA 3 with two more games on the PlayStation 2, which we have to talk about briefly just to kind of bring this all together. It's, of course, followed up first by Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Sam kind of had this plan. You know, the first game had Liberty City, Vice City, San Andreas, based on New York, Miami, San Francisco. The plan, I think, even at the time of Grand Theft Auto 3, was let's do a trilogy of games on the PS2, where we introduce these cities one after the other. So they did Liberty City first, and then they did Vice City, and then they did San Andreas, which of course they expanded from just being San Francisco to being an entire state of San Andreas with multiple cities. Grand Theft Auto 3 is set vaguely in the present, but for Vice City, they do something very different. One of Sam Hauser's favorite of the favoritest crime movies is the Al Pacino movie Scarface, the Brian De Palma Al Pacino movie Scarface which depicted the rise of this Cuban gangster. It was a remake of an earlier movie that depicted a more traditional kind of Al Capone-like gangster. 
who rises to the top of the cocaine trade in 1980s Miami and then, of course, ends up getting too big for himself and ends up falling. That's the arc. It's a very bloody movie. Brian De Palma is another one of this wave of auteurs that came up at the same time as Lucas and Coppola and Scorsese. Like Scorsese, he's very much into this kind of gritty aesthetic and also this violent aesthetic. So it's a very violent movie. It's a very gritty movie, and it depicts this kind of glamour of this romanticized version of the 1980s Miami, because Miami was a happening place with the Cuban exiles. It was a party town, and it was kind of the heart of the cocaine distribution in the United States, because since it did have a strong, large Hispanic population, it was an easy place for the Colombians that were bringing cocaine in the United States. Florida is relatively close to South America because, of course, this is before the Mexican cartels were really the big drivers of the drug trade. It was coming from South America, not Mexico. So South Florida is an easy point of entry. It has a strong Latino community, so it's kind of an easy place to blend in when you're smuggling in. It was glamorous. It was dangerous. It was drug-filled. And Sam Hauser famously called this the grooviest era of crime. You also had Miami Vice, of course, in the 1980s, which was also kind of depicting this idea of a somewhat glamorous, somewhat dangerous, neon-filled Miami. So they knew that's what they wanted for Vice City. Not just that they wanted to set it in some place that was like Miami, but some place that was like Miami in the 1980s. The other kind of goal they had is kind of a weird goal. They wanted sidekicks and characters and side characters that were very engaging and very sympathetic and could be just as as moving as the journey of the main character. And of all places, according to interviews, Sam Hauser got this ambition from Star Fox 64, of all places. Star Fox 64. So what, he had to do a barrel roll? <laughs> I think what he drew from that is, of course, in that game, for those who haven't played it, you know, you're playing Star Fox, but you have your wingmen. They are constantly interjecting throughout the various missions. Obviously, there's a lot of memes there, you know, do a barrel roll, Fox, and, you know, Slippy being helpless all the time. Help me. I don't know that they're the best archetypes of characters, but the point is, is that they were characters with personalities that were constantly intersecting your story and that you somewhat built a rapport with, even if that rapport was, why haven't the bad guys killed Slippy yet? God, he's so annoying. You're still building some kind of rapport. I would interject there and say, I can sympathize with Slippy. He's having difficulty with the ship. The one I always wanted to kill was Falco. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. He was just an arrogant jerk. So there's a refinement in the writing in Vice City. There's a refinement in the aesthetic. They get big names again. They get Ray Liotta to play the main character. I mean, Mr. Goodfellas himself. They get Burt Reynolds and Tom Sizemore and Louise Guzman and, and all of these big, particularly in these kind of crime situations, actors. And of course, they do the same thing they did with other reiterations, like with Grand Theft Auto 2, is they improved the textures, they improved the capabilities of the game because they have a better understanding of how games work on the PlayStation 2. Grand Theft Auto 3 came out fairly early in the PlayStation 2 life cycle. Right. Akin to, say, the Super Nintendo, where you had early games that looked very pixelated and very poor, more akin to advanced versions of the NES, versus in the late cycle of the Super Nintendo, where it was pushing the limits of that system. And you can see if you put 
Grand Theft Auto 3 and Vice City side by side, Vice City just looks better. It's smoother. The graphics are more detailed, especially at a distance. Looks like you almost have like a little bit of photorealism with the palm trees. Mm-hmm. It's a more polished game on top of the whole narrative thing. They made improvements to the world to really make the graphics better and take full advantage of the capabilities of the PlayStation 2. And of course, the most amazing soundtrack just about ever put to a video game. I mean, if you like 80s music, and I do, then Vice City is just out of this world. Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, Hall and Oates, Run DMC, Blondie, Cool in the Gang. I mean, Rick James. It's just the most amazing soundtrack for this kind of soundtrack, for a soundtrack that's you know, licensed tracks as opposed to mu- uh, original music. It's just an amazing assemblage. And of course, they create everybody's favorite hair metal band, Love Fist. Who doesn't love listening to Love Fist talk on the radio? <laughs> it takes it to a whole nother level. And it's once again, you know, it's released in 2002. Within two days, it was already a million seller. That's pretty quick. Within two years, it was a six million seller. Within five years, it was an 8 million seller. It kept selling. So did GTA 3. We didn't really talk about that with GTA 3, but GTA 3 by 2008 had sold 14.5 million units worldwide. Again, it's a game that just kept selling year after year after year. Vice City was the same way. By 2008, it had sold over 17 million units, and it sold more than Grand Theft Auto 3 because it was that much more polished and that much more cool and interesting. Then you got San Andreas. San Andreas, again, was going to a particular time and place, not just a place. They wanted to get at gang culture in the early 90s, this hip-hop stuff that Sam Hauser had grew up loving so much. L.A. gangs, L.A. street culture, L.A. hip-hop. That was kind of the point of it. But again, they grounded it in a story about a very relatable character, C.J., who had gotten out of all of this mess and who was dragged back into it and is just trying to navigate himself through this world. I mean, he's the most sympathetic of the heroes of the first three Grand Theft Auto games. I mean, the three PlayStation 2 Grand Theft Auto games. He's this fully rounded, interesting character. Then they introduced all of this RPG stuff, which is kind of funny because Sam Hauser doesn't even like RPG stuff. He was not a D&D guy. He was not a systems guy. He was not an RPG guy. But as a way of immersing yourself even more fully in the character, they gave you stats for everything. And they allowed your body to change shape, eat too much fast food, and you'd get fat. Lift enough weights, you'd get buff. All of this stuff to fully bring you into this character. And of course, it had, in addition to all the mini games that all the games had had before it, it had the mini game where you're leading your gang and trying to take over one neighborhood, one section of the city at a time from all of the other gangs, which of course, again, played right into Sam Hauser's love of things like the Warriors. It's an absolutely huge game, and it sold even more than Vice City. I mean, these were blockbusters. And it's for all the reasons we talked about. I mean, I know we didn't go much into the development of Vice City and San Andreas, but that's really because it was the same driving force behind all of them. All that changed was kind of the specific influences in what they were going for, 1980s Miami, 1990s Compton, whatever. It's all the same kind of idea of bringing this grittiness and this realism and this grown-up sense of gameplay. 
bringing in mature narratives and combining them with the endless possibilities of an open-world game like Elite. That's Grand Theft Auto in a nutshell. We didn't really talk much about the controversy. I think at some point we'll probably do a whole episode on late 90s, early 2000s video game controversy because it's a kind of a fascinating period in the politics of this. So we won't dwell on it much in this episode, even though it's kind of fundamental to Grand Theft Auto. Just to kind of go over that briefly so that we have a complete picture of things, there had been the hearings in 1993, which we've talked about before, when the more realistic in a manner of speaking, digitized graphics of something like a Mortal Kombat or a Night Trap really worried a Congress that still saw video games as something for children. By the late 90s, by the Grand Theft Auto time, I think there's an understanding that teenagers, maybe even some college students, are playing video games. Some of that controversy around things like Mortal Kombat which is still pretty fantastical and and not very grounded in reality, has kind of gone to the side. But Grand Theft Auto is something entirely different because it's depicting real crime in real recognizable contemporary settings. And instead of vilifying it, it's sort of raising it up as an aspirational aspect to it. The concern is that someone who's more impressionable is going to look at that and say, oh, look, someone did a crime. They're getting recognition, power, respect, and all this other thing. I want that. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm going to emulate that. Right. When Kano rips out his opponent's heart in Mortal Kombat, in his fatality, that's no more going to cause a little kid to rip out his friend's heart any more than watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom would cause him to go and rip out his friend's heart. I mean, you can't even do it. I mean, it's impossible. It's clearly fantasy. It's considered in bad taste. It's considered desensitizing by some. I don't agree with these arguments, and I think modern science doesn't either, but I mean, those were the arguments of the time. It was seen as desensitizing, but it wasn't really seen as something you're going to go emulate. You're not going to rip out a heart like Kano. not going to electrocute somebody like Raiden can. You're not a god of thunder. But get in a car, go joyriding, and run over people? I mean, that's something that you can do. And again, I'm not saying the people that were playing Grand Theft Auto were then going out and doing that, but I'm just saying that's something you can actually do. Pick up a sniper rifle, go up on a building and start shooting random people. Again, that's something you can do. It hits a little closer to home than the fatalities of Mortal Kombat. And there's still this sense that, okay, maybe teenagers are playing video games, but there's still a sense in the late 90s, early 2000s that these are for kids. Even though the PlayStation has infiltrated an older market, a college market, the idea of 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds playing video games is still not a thing that exists. I mean, yes, some people play Solitaire on their Windows PCs or something casual like that. And you have a few diehards that have been video game fans since the Atari VCS that never stopped playing them. But when you're talking about the population at large, video games still stop around 20 in the public mindset, in the public view. And they're still more thought of as kids' entertainment than they are even college student entertainment. Grand Theft Auto 3 causes a bit of an uproar, particularly the thing that captures the imagination is they're trying to make this entire game not necessarily realistic, but systematically consistent. 
So somebody has the fun idea because Grand Theft Auto games always have this little bit of outrageousness and this little bit of pushing good taste. Somebody has the fun idea of, well, we're depicting the underbelly, so we need to have prostitutes. So you need to be able to have sex with prostitutes. Wouldn't it be fun if by having sex with a prostitute, you could also restore your health? So, you know, that's kind of, ah, that's fun. Well, because the game needs to be systematically consistent as well, you're paying the prostitute because that's realistic. Newsflash, you pay prostitutes for sex. NPCs have money on them. Systematically, if you're giving your money to the prostitute, then the prostitute is now going to have that money. I mean, that's just being internally consistent. You can kill people in the game. You've always been able to kill people in Grand Theft Auto games. When you kill people, you can get their stuff because, again, that's being systematically consistent. The thing that really captured the public's imagination and caused the the fear-mongering more than anything else in the game, because it combined violence with that thing that Americans really can't stand, which is sex, it combined all of that violence in movies and sex on TV in this one distilled moment where you could pay a prostitute to restore your health, then kill that prostitute and take back your money. Somehow that was just, I think because it combined that sexual element too, which in puritanical American society is always a no-no, that just captured the public imagination in particular, and that's where the real outcry was on Grand Theft Auto 3. It's like, oh my god, you can have sex with a prostitute for a benefit, restoring your health, then you can kill the prostitute and take your money back. This was not a manufactured controversy. You know, the Grand Theft Auto controversy, the first game, it was manufactured. Yes, it somewhat took on a life of its own after it got going, but it was manufactured. This was not something Rockstar manufactured. This was legitimate outrage in huge sections of more conservative American society. As the game became more controversial, it got more press. As it got more press, it got more attention. As it got more attention, more people played it. As more people played it, they found out how amazing it was. No such thing as bad publicity when you've got a good product. It does amaze me how many news stories there were at the time that pretty much just blew it up as the moral fiber of America is being destroyed by this video game. Right. And then, of course, it did come out in a time when school shootings were on the rise, when other teenage activities were on the rise. And so you would hear stories about there was a shooting in Tennessee where this one kid randomly shot a couple of people. It was tied back to Grand Theft Auto because he played Grand Theft Auto. There was the famous DC sniper shootings, and while the DC sniper was a Halo man, he wasn't a Grand Theft Auto man, it still played into this whole fear about these Grand Theft Auto games. And as Grand Theft Auto became more popular, of course, later teenagers that got up to things, whether they were driving-related or shooting-related, many of them, of course, played Grand Theft Auto because literally tens of millions of people played Grand Theft Auto. This kind of fed on itself— and raise the notoriety even more. Here's this game where you're flouting the law, you're killing people, you're having sex with prostitutes and then killing them. Fox News is in its early days, and of course Fox News is picking this up. You have Jack Thompson, the attorney, and we'll do a whole episode on that, so we won't talk about that here, but he was a critic of video game violence, and he became fixated on Grand Theft Auto. Everyone became fixated on Grand Theft Auto. And then, of course, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas took it to the next level because at one point in this quest to provide a complete realism around the character, you have to eat, you can work out, your body shape changes, you can go on dates. They were creating this complete immersion of you as the character within this game world to an extent that they had not done even in the two that came before it. One of the things they wanted you to be able to do, in addition to eating out and exercising, is have sex. 
Like, not in the sense of having the sex with the prostitute, where it just cuts to uh, the outside of the car uh, rocking around and it leaves it to your imagination, but you were going to have sex with the people that you went on dates with when you were invited inside for some nice, hot coffee. Oh. They realized they couldn't do that, because sex is the third rail of American society. It's the place you can't go because of the longstanding puritanical background that makes up a big part of the American experience. You just can't go there. It would become an adult-only game instead of an M for Mature game if they added sex minigames, even if it was demure and didn't show full frontal or anything like that. Adult-only meant that big retailers like Walmart wouldn't carry it, and it meant that even though the game would still be popular, if it's not in enough stores, if not enough stores carry it, you've shot yourself in the foot on sales. It could not be adult-only. Because 60 to 80% of their distribution chain would not carry the game if it was adult only. So they took the sex minigames out. Or rather, to put it more accurately, they disabled the sex minigames, but did not actually rip out the code. Which is common. When you're making a big complex game, believe me, these were big complex games and the amount of crunch that happened at Rockstar to make these games happen was astronomical, legendary. Within an industry that is notorious for its crunch time on major games, Rockstar was legendary, even in the context of other crunch. You don't have time to go in and excise code you're not going to use because you don't know what the butterfly effect of that will be. If you rip out this code here, it might actually affect something way over there on this other side of the game that you would have never thought was linked to it, just because of the way you've built this up over time. So you you don't rip out code. It was harmless that they left it in. This is very common in practically any game, software, whatever. You have debug codes and a debug flag that you can turn on that puts up new windows and all this other thing and runs the program slower in order to have the person developing the game actually have a better understanding of what's going on so that they can better diagnose things. And anyone who has dealt with code before knows that it is way easier to just comment out the command to a function at a certain point where you don't want it to happen than it is to rip out that function because you don't know what something else might actually tangentially just briefly touch it in some weird way. Yep. The more complex it is, you just don't know. Case in point, when we talked about Ultima 9, there was that entire thing with the combat system and why was it slow? And that is just because (laughs) it was running two combat systems at once because someone forgot that they were already running a combat system on it. By commenting out that bit of code, they were able to speed up the game. Exactly. It really was innocent that they left it in. They were not leaving it in in the hopes that someone would discover it. But, of course, somebody did discover it when it was released on PC. There's only so much cracking you can do into console games at the time a console game is released. Over time, as emulation becomes more advanced and whatnot, there's a lot more that you can get at. But at the time, particularly back then, there's not much you can really dig into the console versions. But PC, that's a whole nother story. That's pretty wide open because it's not in a weird proprietary format. When uh, San Andreas was out on PC, somebody went in, discovered the so-called hot coffee code, and re-enabled it. It was half-finished, because they took the games out. It's not like they were in a completed state and at the last minute decided not to run with them. They were incomplete when they were taken out, because they decided they couldn't. They were all for pushing boundaries, and Sam Hauser would have much rather had them in, but even he understood it couldn't be (laughs) adult-only. 
it would kill them. But they were re-enabled. And the mod, the hot coffee mod, was put out on the internet. And then all hell really broke loose that made running over prostitutes look like just like a typical day on Sesame Street instead of Liberty City. Dancing through a field of daisies. And, of course, there were the accusations because these older people, these lawmakers, these concerned citizens, they're not tech people. They don't understand the way that complex code works and commenting out works. They kind of just assumed that it was left in there on purpose so that people would find it and that this was all part of a plot to put this horrible, sexy time stuff into the game. And the ESRB very famously, temporarily, actually did reclassify it as adult-only, despite the fact that this was unimplemented code. Which, uh, you know, was controversial and it didn't stay that way, but it brought a whole new level of controversy. And I, I think that was peak controversy. I don't think Grand Theft Auto 4 or Grand Theft Auto 5 or GTA Online have faced anywhere near the same controversy as San Andreas did. There's reasons for that. I think the main two reasons are that it's an institution now, and as something becomes established, it just becomes normal. You just get used to it. What was shocking 20 years ago is not shocking today. That's true in anything. That's true in music and fashion, in anything. We're desensitized to it. Exactly. That's part of it. But the other part of it is that there is an understanding today that adults play games. And adults would like to play adult-oriented games. Right. And, And there's an understanding that it's not just a market for children anymore. So there's a greater appreciation of what a game like Grand Theft Auto 4 or Grand Theft Auto 5 does from a gameplay perspective, from a literary, uh, from an artistic perspective. Again, we're not going to cover 4 and 5 in this podcast. That's outside our scope. Grand Theft Auto 4, just to say it briefly, was really praised for its story when it came out because you played an immigrant a Serbian immigrant that was involved in the wars in, in the Balkans and then comes to Liberty City. There was a lot of respect for that story that it told of this character. There were still people that were uneasy about the violence in a Grand Theft Auto game, but I think the artistic side of it was emphasized more than the violence side of it or the sex side of it. I think San Andreas was kind of the peak of that. By the time you got to the next generation, there was a real maturing in the industry, which is why that's kind of a logical place to break our story is between San Andreas and then Grand Theft Auto 4. And of course, there's so much more we could say about the controversies and about the legislation and about Jack Thompson and his crusade and all of that. We will definitely, not as our next episode, but at some point in the future, we will definitely just do an episode on all of that. So that's why we're just kind of grazing over top of it at this point. The whole controversy thing just makes me wonder, and I'm sure you probably don't have the answer to this, but I would be given to wonder how in the modern era we tie video games, especially at their inception, and how they impacted youth to it being, it's corrupting our youth, it's the reason why we have this mass shooting, this school shooting, this depravity, whatever it is that they want to tie to it. I've thought this back when I was younger, and I still think this today, and I haven't really had anyone really answer it well to me. I know we've gone through the same level of, for lack of a better term, hysteria with music, comic books, D&D, role-playing games. Dungeons and Dragons, yep. We've gone through almost the same song and dance number before. Have people back then done the same level that they've done with video games go, okay, yeah, this comic here, because it depicted X, is the reason Little Johnny did Y. 
Oh, yes. No, that's true with all of these. Look up heavy metal suicides on the internet to see another example. You know, the older generation always fears what's new. And then the younger generation grows up. What they grew up with becomes normal. So rock and roll became normal when the kids that grew up listening to rock and roll became adults. And it was amazing. I I remember hearing about rock and roll and how Elvis Presley, who is considered a staple today and is much beloved. Right. Just the fact that he had gyrating hips movement was considered too suggestive. Yeah. On his third appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, he was very famously filmed only from the waist up because it was just too obscene. Consider that, kids. Someone just dancing, waving their hips back and forth suggestively is considered too obscene for television. And it wasn't even that suggestive. It was deemed so by the prudish Americans of the time, but it, there wasn't, he wasn't even trying to be that sexual <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. Then go back further with comics. Yeah. You had the golden and silver age of comics, superheroes, pirates, so on and so forth. The stuff that eventually led to such things as you said before, Watchmen. Yeah. There was a time back then when Batman came out, which if you look at the old Batman comics, are very, very tame. But they were considered scandalous back then. And again, it's that, you know, and I'm not an expert on the history of comic books, but to my understanding, it's a very similar thing to video games. Comic books were becoming a mainstream form of entertainment across age groups. And so some of the more gruesome horror comics, for instance, were really geared towards a more adult audience, but there was still this conception in the minds of people at the time that comic books were for children. So those kind of more gory, violent horror comics or noir comics, detective comics, etc., were seen as corrupting the youth when, again, I'm sure they sold to kids just like violent video games sell to kids, but they were reaching different segments of the population. It wasn't just for children anymore. Of course, the comic book industry was not able to escape significant regulation through the Comic Code Authority, which neutered comic books for decades, uh, just like motion pictures were unable to escape extensive regulation through the Hays Code, which set back the development of movies as a mature art form for decades. Video games was able to largely escape that, and I think that it helped that movies had gone through it first. Because the Motion Picture Association of America existed, kind of in the rebellion from the Hayes Code era when things were outright censored, you had the formation of the MPAA and this idea that if you rate a movie, you can include racier or more violent or more mature themes in an R movie and not worry about that corrupting the kids that are watching their G movies. I think the fact that the MPAA had happened first was kind of a help for video games because video games escaped that censorship era that comic books went through, that movies went through. Video games are rated, and yes, there's still a degree of censorship in the sense that almost no one makes an adult-only game, so the truly extreme violence and nudity and whatnot is kept out. But the art form was never neutered in the same way that comics and, and movies were, and it's been allowed to keep growing as a result. But the reason video games became accepted is the same reason that rock and roll became accepted, that comic books became accepted, that film noir became accepted. And that's that the young people that were interested in it became older people and they grew up with it. So it was part of their worldview and they accepted it. It gained mainstream acceptance in society and then they were scared of the next thing, <laughs> the next new and scary thing the kids were doing. And it's the same with video games. Video games have been pretty normalized, and now uh, adults are worried about other things, I guess, like Snapchat and 
social media and all of that kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't yell at clouds yet. I may be an adult, but I don't yell at clouds. Oh, come on. You're 40. You got to yell at something. <laughs> Darn you, kids. Get off my digital yard lawn place thing. That's what I say. <laughs> I tell the kids to get off my digital lawn. My digital lawn is that picture, the default background of Windows XP. That is my lawn. You kids need to get off of it. It's digital off. Yes, well, you're 40, and we should be yelling at the same things. True. Okay, so fine. Come over. I'll pour <laughs> some uh, whiskey. We can polish our uh, whatevers and yell at kids to get off our digital lawn. There you go. But in the meantime, I think that we should pivot from something risque and edgy and dark and gritty to the most family-friendly thing you can imagine in video games, Jeffrey. Cute, adorable slimes. The Nintendo Leisure Company. The Nintendo Leisure Company? <laughs> Nintendo. We should talk about Nintendo. We talk about Nintendo from time to time, but one thing that we haven't really talked about, or at least to the extent that we did, we did it long, long ago when I knew less about the company, is the very early days of Nintendo. Nintendo before it was a video game company. As far as I know, we just mostly glossed over that bit. Exactly, because Nintendo has almost 100 years of history before it was ever into video games. Some of that history is very fascinating, and all of that history informs what Nintendo became and what Nintendo was and uh, what Nintendo still is as a video game company. For my second book, I've been delving into this history a lot, getting into some new sources, including translating the French works of uh, the Nintendo scholar Florent Gorge. I think it's time that we talked about Nintendo before video games. We'll have to go look at getting those Pokemon cards before Pokemon cards next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and in other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book... They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>